Thank you, Lucy. That was brilliant. Uh, some of you uh, know that uh, Peter, my husband, uh, comes from Northern Ireland. He grew up in the land of saints and scholars uh, and currently pretty good rugby players in a deeply committed Christian family uh, that were committed to the life of their local parish church. <clears throat> but when, as a teenager, Peter made his own Christian commitment, he was recommended to his local Baptist church because there were people there of his sort of age, you know? And, well, the rest, as they say, is history. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. The Baptist church he became part of was full of Bible-loving, prayerful, supportive people. And in those key early years of faith, those people welcomed him, they nurtured him, they invested in him, and they gave him opportunities to, to speak and, and to preach and so on. So you see, it was a church that was important to him. He had a lot to be grateful to them for. <clears throat> so every time uh, we were back in Northern Ireland visiting family after we got married, we reconnected with the church there. The summer after our first son was born, we were in Northern Ireland, and Peter's mum very kindly said that as long as the baby was down for his morning sleep, then she'd babysit while I went along to the service. But, well, babies always know, don't they? And so by the time he'd settled, we just about had time to jump in the car, screech into the church car park two minutes before the service started. And I have to tell you that this was not a church where you arrived late. <clears throat> just as we arrived at the outer door, we saw a notice that wasn't there the last time we'd visited. It simply said, we would respectfully remind all ladies to have their heads covered at the Lord's table. In other words, ladies, please remember to wear your hats at communion. And this was a church that had communion every Sunday, and I didn't have a hat with me. I probably didn't even possess one in those days. So we quickly decided that Peter would go in, he'd go into the service, and I'd enjoy a walk home. <coughs> As it turned out, <coughs> sorry, this is a nuisance. As it turned out, I was actually very grateful I decided not to go in that morning, because later we discovered that just a few weeks earlier, a young woman had arrived in church without her head covered, and she had had the error of her ways pointed out to her from the pulpit. Now, hear me, I am not telling this story to criticise that group of believers. I hesitated to tell it because you will assume I am. I am not. Christians come to different conclusions about the right clothes to wear in church, we reach different conclusions about all sorts of other things too. And I know that they were deeply devoted Christians, probably a lot better Christians than I am, and they were keen to honour God. But, you know, I couldn't help wondering whether their enthusiasm for imposing this particular rule might run the risk of losing focus on the most important things. 
The problem wasn't that it made me feel uncomfortable. The problem was that there was a danger that the radical challenge of following Jesus in today's world was being reduced down to something that we could manage, that we're in control of, that's within our reach. The stories told about the early days of religious broadcasting on the BBC when services of worship were first uh, broadcast on the radio for the first time. Back then, <coughs> some churchmen apparently worried that if there was a broadcast service from a church on the radio, there was a real danger that the Lord's Prayer might be heard by men in pubs who were still wearing their hats. And we find it hard to understand, don't we? We scoff. But of course, the real question is, where do we do the same sort of things? You know, no doubt those churchmen had a genuine desire to protect God's glory, as if God needed our protection. But you can't help but wonder whether they ended up focusing on something that wasn't the main thing. And something like all of this, it strikes me, was happening in this episode from Mark's Gospel. That's our passage that's been set for today. Back in Mark chapter 7, Jesus and his disciples had had a busy time of ministry. And now they're relaxing and sharing a meal together when a group of Pharisees and teachers of the law happen upon them. And these Jewish leaders are scandalized to see that the disciples are eating without first going through the ceremonial washing of hands. And it's the ceremonial bit that's important here. We've all learnt through COVID, haven't we, the importance of proper hand washing, but that's not what's going on here. It's the lack of religious washing, of the ceremonial washing that scandalizes them. The Pharisees and some teachers of the law who'd come from Jerusalem gathered round Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding on to the tradition of the elders. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? And did you notice Jesus had obviously forgotten here that he's meant to be meek and mild because he rounds on them, doesn't he? Isaiah was right, he says, when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. But why is Jesus so angry? What have they done wrong? These Pharisees and teachers of the law are people who take pleasing God really seriously. They're people who are rightly concerned to protect the unique identity of God's people, to see God's people living as God's people should in the ways that God calls us to live, who want every details of their lives to please God. And well, 
Don't we want that too? As we begin to ask what God is saying to us through this passage this morning, we need to begin by recognizing that in lots of ways, the Jewish leaders in this passage are just like us. You know, we've made the scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law into pantomime villains, haven't we, sometimes? Every time they appear in the Bible, we're we're ready to hiss and boo because they're the baddies. But we need to realize that these are people who want to live holy for God, to be all out for God, people just like us. So where were they going wrong? They were going wrong, firstly, because the call of God goes deeper. In verse 6, these people honor me with their lips, quoting Isaiah, but their hearts are far from me. Hearts have been big business this week, haven't they? Do you remember last Wednesday was not only Ash Wednesday, it was also Valentine's Day. And apparently, 25 million cards were sent in the UK last Valentine's Day. And my suspicion is they're still counting this year's. I don't know if you noticed, but Jesus uses the word heart three times in this passage. There in verse 6, again in verse 19, and in verse 21, it's what comes out of someone's heart that makes them unclean. It's it's what's going on in our hearts that's really important to God. Jesus is saying to these religious leaders, look to your own lives, examine your own hearts, rather than pointing the finger at the unclean actions of others. Remember that every time you point the finger, and you might just try doing this, every time you point the finger, you find three pointing back at you. Examine your own heart. There are some issues, aren't there? Some people who really push our buttons. Do you have any people like that? Any issues like that? I I certainly do. People and issues that provoke a reaction, that that really get to us, that disturb us, that leave us feeling all churned up, all worked up. You have some too. Uh, I can think of one person in particular who really got to me, and to some extent he still does. He regularly upset me, frustrated me, made me so angry that I spent hours pounding round the pond in our local park, railing at God about this person. Until eventually God graciously led me to recognize that my first responsibility wasn't to put him right, but to put my heart right. Above all else, we're told in Proverbs 4, above all else, guard your hearts, for everything you do flows from it. My first responsibility is to put my own heart right, to ask God what it is in me that means that this stuff gets to me so much and leaves me so worked up. What it is in me. 
I don't know if any of you possess a, a pearl necklace. I think I can see one, actually. But, but whether you, you, you have a pearl necklace or not, you probably know something about the way a pearl develops. You do? It, it all begins with a little bit of grit that gets inside the oyster shell. And that bit of grit lodges in the tender membrane of the oyster. Can you feel it yet? And it aggravates the soft flesh so that the oyster begins to lay down a protective layer around that bit of grit. And as those protective layers keep getting laid down, gradually that bit of grit grows into a beautiful and a precious pearl. The aggravation is the beginning of the process that produces the pearl. I wonder who are the people that aggravate you? What are the issues that stir you up so much that you don't even want to talk about them? I wonder what God is wanting to do in us, not in them, but in us where that bit of grit has lodged inside us. I wonder what beautiful thing God wants to produce in us as he enables us to overcome evil with good, to respond to painful situations with layer upon layer of love and forgiveness. First, take the plank out of your own eye, says Jesus in Matthew 7, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brothers. Look first to your own hearts, says Jesus. Examine your own hearts rather than pointing the finger at the unclean actions of others. The first thing this passage calls us to do this morning is to be willing to look deeper at our own attitudes and reactions before we point the finger at others. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were going wrong firstly because they had forgotten that the call of God goes deeper. And secondly, they were going wrong because they'd forgotten that the call of God was to something so much bigger than a slightly improved human life. They were going wrong because they were trying to tame, to domesticate, to reduce the call of God to what they could manage, what they could do, what was humanly possible. With all that uh, Russia has been doing in Ukraine, and then just last week with the death of Alexei Navalny, I'm uh, hesitant to confess that my first degree wasn't in theology, it was in Russian, which means that I've read uh, a good deal of, of novels by the great Russian writers. The legend of the Grand Inquisitor is a story uh, told by the Russian writer Fyodor Dostoevsky. It's within his big, big, big work, The Brothers Karamazov. The legend of the Grand Inquisitor is set in Seville in the time of the Spanish Inquisition, when thousands of people were burnt at the stake for not believing the right things. In the story, Jesus returns to Seville at the height of the Inquisition, and he begins to heal people, to forgive people, to set people free, just like he does in the Gospels. 
And just like in the Gospels, he's arrested and condemned as a heretic. There's an irony there, isn't there? Just before Jesus is executed, the Grand Inquisitor comes to visit him in his prison cell, and he tells Jesus that people don't want him. Jesus has lost. People don't want Jesus. He's far too risky, far too demanding. What they want are rules, because rules make them feel safe. And rules can do that, can't they? Rules can reduce the call of God to something we can manage. You have let go of the commands of God, says Jesus, and are holding on to human rules. But what commands of God have they let go of? What are the commands of God? Well, one of the teachers of the law comes and asks Jesus that very same question in Matthew 22. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like to it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. I think I've mentioned before the uh, disciple-making movements that Peter, my husband, serves as, as a trustee that's called Big Life. It's a, a movement of God's Spirit that's planted hundreds of thousands of microchurches across the globe over the last decade, disciples who make disciples, churches that plant churches in, in a really exciting and humbling way. But, you know, it's the name I love the most, Big Life, because that's what Jesus calls us into, a big life that just keeps on getting bigger. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Jesus explodes the confines of what we think we're made for. He calls us into this ever bigger life of exploring God's love and God's grace. And then, he says, let that love so fill you that it flows out in such a way that you begin to love your neighbor as you love yourself, ever more generous in God's grace and God's love. That is such a big vision of what we're made for. One commentator says this, the Jesus of Matthew's gospel breaks out of the boundaries imposed by tradition, law, and even logic. The challenge he poses is whether people will continue to stay safe within the boundaries or whether they will learn to see things through Jesus' eyes. A big life that keeps on growing bigger. Jesus was pretty brutal with the Pharisees in this passage. He was brutal because they were made for so much more we are made for so much more. And Jesus won't let us settle for less. 
this morning we come to share communion together. And as we come, the living Jesus is here with us, moving among us by his spirit, looking at us with eyes that are so full of love and of understanding. The living Jesus is here with us, and in his love, he is probing our hearts and inviting us into his big life of love and grace and compassion and freedom. He's here calling us to let him share his heart with us. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you, the Lord says in Ezekiel. A new spirit, the spirit of Jesus himself that will help us to live more and more his life. To see more and more as he sees. To look deeper. To live bigger. And to trust more in the depth and the power of God's love. The living Jesus is here. And as we prepare to come and encounter him afresh in this communion meal, we're going to remain seated and we will sing as we prepare our own hearts to come and meet with the Lord afresh.